Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, August 26, 2018. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I'm sure you've heard the phrase lost in translation. Um, in the English language, it's an idiom. It's uh, the freedictionary.com defines it as this, of a word or words, having lost or lacking the full subtlety of meaning or significance when translated from the original language to another, especially when done literally. There's the key. Anyone who has ever traveled abroad knows exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Though English is not a universal language by any means, it's often helpful for tourists, and so you may see English language signs in other countries. Um, Not all of them are as helpful, though. Uh, Here's a few that you might say got lost a little in translation. At the airport's authority in India, it kindly reminds travelers, eating carpet, strictly prohibited. Sometimes the carpet is just so tempting, though. Um, Or, would you like to visit a high-maintenance chick salon? I guess there's truth in advertising. You know, some people a little more higher maintenance than others. Um, This mosque reminds you, toilet, the place of prayer. Yeah. We've all had our moments, though, haven't we? Uh, Or this one, fan cue for not smoking. This is a helpful sign to pull out when you're playing um, Scrabble and you just got that letter Q that you can't seem to play. Hey, this was on a sign in whatever country that is. Um, Or be forewarned, at this pool, anyone obeying the swimming pool regulations may be required to leave. So think twice before obeying, okay? Anyone up for some boneless lamp or bone or lamp meat? It's kind of hard to see, but it's a boneless lamp on the left and a lamp meat on the right. Though I think you can get boneless lamp way cheaper at um, Ikea, if you look. (laughs) Like $65 for a boneless lamp is kind of pricey. Um, This sign says, please do not feed the flamingos. But I don't think that's a flamingo in the picture. I don't speak Spanish, but I'm thinking flamingos is not flamingos, but it might be llamas. Yeah. Or, you know when you go out to a nice restaurant, sometimes you just want to treat yourself to a plate of adulterous meat. Or, or adulterous vegetables, if you know, if that's how you swing. Hey, let he who is without sin take the first bite. That's all I'm saying. Just a reminder, it is forbidden to throw nothing down the toilet. So you just have to stay there until you got something to put in it, I guess. This sign just says parking. I can only assume it's connected to a golf course, and that's where the player of the month probably is allowed to uh, place their vehicles. Uh, This is an Arabic English 102 book, and it's especially helpful if you need help with your grammar or writing. I don't know if it's horseback riding or... Elephant writing, but remember, this is 102, so it's way more advanced than 101. Yeah. And finally, 
Please help us save water. Presh, press the flush button twice. <laughs> Don't argue with it. It's new math. It totally works. Yeah. Well, welcome to the fourth and final week in our August sermon series entitled Rediscovering Scripture, How the Bible Came to Be. And for the past month, we've been looking at who wrote the various books of the Bible, when they were penned, and how they were all put together. We've looked at the Old Testament, otherwise known as the Hebrew Scriptures, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the New Testament, which also took 400 years to put together, we discovered last week. And today we're going to look at how the different translations of the Bible have changed over the years. And I'd just like to say in advance, thank you for being here this morning. I, I'm so inspired. One of my aunties tells me quite often that she only reads the King James Bible because she's been told it's the most accurate version. Anyone ever heard that before? Well, we're going to look at the progression of Bible translations, which may help you decide which translation you might be interested in having as your go-to scripture to read for your devotion time. The reality is we don't have the original documents or manuscripts that make up the Bible. All we have are copies of those originals, and some of those copies have what's called variants, or there's discrepancies among them. So can we even trust that the Bible is authentic? In an article released by Relevant Magazine this week, author Janelle Alberts notes some interesting facts. She says, we have over 10,000 fragments from which we compile and verify the accuracy of the Bible. And those 10,000 fragments are thousands more than we have of either Homer or Aristotle's works. And all these manuscripts, fragments, scrolls, and parchments have been checked and double-checked for mismatches, as I said, known as variants. And uh, most are just like one letter that was turned around or reversed, or a scribe had uh, copied a different letter when he or she was copying it. Um, and there's only, uh, all of those variants are cataloged. You can go online and find them. Uh, nothing is hidden or secret. Most of those, though, the meaning, uh, the, the, the letter that was changed or whatever, doesn't change the overall meaning of it at all. And the folks that copied and recopied these documents were so incredibly careful that there's only about a 10% difference from the bits that we have from 500 B.C. to the ones, compared to the ones we have in 1500 A.D. So over 2,000 years, only a very small, that's uh, discrepancy. Plus, history supports large parts of the Bible. Bart Ehrman, who's the uh, uh, University of North Carolina professor of religious studies and a self-avowed atheist, there's something, or sorry, agnostic. Interesting, being a professor of religious studies and being agnostic. He notes that we have more evidence for Jesus than for just about anyone else from Jesus' same time period. So I'd say that's fairly noteworthy. Well, let's talk about translations. The most significant of the ancient Old Testament translations is the Septuagint. Uh, Septuagint is a Latin word that means 70, and according to tradition, the Septuagint was translated by 72 elders uh, for use of the Greek-speaking Jews in Egypt. Now, scholars now know that it was produced during the 3rd to 2nd centuries B.C. by a number of different translators, uh, much more than the 72 that the uh, tradition has it, and they employed quite different principles. There wasn't a uniform sense of, okay, here's how we're going to do this. The Anchor Bible Dictionary says that some parts of the Septuagint, in, Sept, in the Septuagint, the Greek is painfully literal and awkward. But then in other places, it's paraphrased 
and quite interpretive. Well, this was, the Septuagint was the version of the Hebrew Scriptures that the early church looked at most often. In fact, there are more quotes from the Septuagint in the New Testament than even from the original Hebrew. So in the 4th century A.D., uh, Pope Demasus commissioned Eusebius Hieronymus Sophonarius, uh, he just went by Jerome to his friends, uh, to produce a new translation based on the existing Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. And his translation was, in a sense, quite revolutionary, for he wrote it in the popular form of the Latin language. So as a result, it became known as the Vulgata, which is Latin for common or colloquial, just writing in the everyday language. Well, then at the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther published a meaningful translation of the Bible into German for the first time ever. He released the New Testament in 1522, the rest of the Bible, and the Apocrypha four years later. Well, inspired by Martin Luther's success and thinking, hey, maybe we don't have to keep the Bible in just Greek and Hebrew and Latin. We can put it in our own language. William Tyndale undertook translating the Bible into English. Now, unfortunately, due to King Henry VIII's hostility towards Martin Luther, Tyndale was forced to flee England, and he had to go and finish writing and then printing his, uh, his uh, Bible in Germany in 1526. As you might imagine, once it got published, uh, people wanted to bring it back to England, which caused all kinds of controversy. The king hated having it in there. Uh, but his version was also uh, pirated by other people's Uh, writing, making copies of the Bible, and they changed some of his um, translation. It was unauthorized. So in 1534, Tyndale had to uh, publish a revision of his initial uh, translation, and uh, Perrin and Dooling, in their introduction to the New Testament, say that uh, when it comes to language, his version, Tyndale's revision version, was just amazing. In fact, it was the foundation on what most of the King James Version uh, was built. Two years later, in 1536, Tyndale was captured by the Roman Catholic authorities. He was tried and eventually executed for heresy, all because he was translating the Bible in English. He is said to have died with the prayer on his lips, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Well, the next major translator was Miles Coverdale, who, while in Europe, published the first complete Bible in English in 1535. He imported copies to England, and this is great. Uh, Remember how the king was so upset about this? So he actually dedicated it to the king of England, uh, to King Henry VIII. And then in his second edition, which was published uh, two years later in 1537, the dedication read, set forth with the king's most gracious license on the title page. Um, It looks like he's kind of frumpy and frowning. Every picture uh, painting I saw of him just looked like that, so... Must have been the stress of the day. Uh, With the death of Queen uh, Queen Elizabeth in 1603, the crown passed to James I. And to regulate the affairs of the English church, James called a religious conference to Hampton Court, uh, the summer palace, in 1604. And the conference finished with having only gotten one thing accomplished. They decided that there would be a new translation of the entire Bible, and it should be authorized for use within the Church of England. The Church of England had uh, recently split from the Catholic Church. King James loved the suggestion, and he took a leading part in organizing the work of the translation, and then in 1611, 
the authorized version was published. Of course, in America, we call it the King James Version. And of course, it's uh, known for its beautiful Elizabethan language, the language of Shakespeare. But it wasn't actually designed to be a new text. Instead, it contained uh, some of the best, at least what the scholars thought, of the existing Greek and Hebrew translations at the time. Well, the problem, and part of the problem with the King James, despite how beautiful the language is, is that really they, the part of the Greek that they took uh, was a relatively late and very poor quality uh, text. So over time, uh, better passages came to be found and established. Brutz Metzger, in his intro to the New Oxford Annotated Bible, mentions that by the middle of the 19th century, the development of many biblical manuscripts that were even older than what the King James was translated on uh, made it apparent that these defects were so many, it really needed to be revised. And so in 1881, a group of international scholars published the English Revised Version, the ERV, which really is the revision of the King James Bible. But the American scholars that were involved in the project were rather unhappy about the restrictions, the very conservative restrictions that were imposed upon the reviewers. So in 1901, they published their own version of the King James Revision called the American Standard Version, or the ASV. Now, in many respects, the scholarship was much more accurate and the textual basis more scientific than the King James, but it was kind of, the the language was awkward, and neither the ERV or the ASV really got that much of a following. And then in 1952, a further revision of the King James Version, or really a revision of the American Standard Version, resulted in the Revised Standard Version, the RSV. And then in 1989, uh, the National Council of Churches authorized a revision of the RSV, which is a revision of the ASV, which is a revision of the King James... And the new revised standard version of the Bible was created. That's actually the Bible that we have in the pews and that we follow here at Palmdale United Methodist Church. Bruce Metzger, writing on behalf of the translation committee, says this. This new version seeks to preserve all that is best in the English Bible as it has been known and used through the years. We have resisted the temptation to introduce terms and phrases that merely reflect current moods and have tried to put the the message of scriptures in simple, enduring words and expressions that are worthy to stand in the great tradition of the King James Version and its predecessors. Well, there have been other translations of the Bible outside that revisionist flow that originated um, with the King James Version. In 1755, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, put together a New Testament translation that, according to the Anchor Bible Dictionary, was way ahead of its time, both in its scholarship and in its use of the English language. He even introduced a lot of study notes that go alongside the translation. And if you're interested, you could go to the Cokesbury website, which is the United Methodist Publishing House, and look for the Wesley Study Bible. And then you can get John Wesley's translation of the New Testament. Well, in 1789, George Campbell published a translation of the Gospels, and get this, he had a 700-page introduction. Can you imagine? Oh, this is a great book. I'm just going to flip through the introduction 700 pages later, right? But what was so groundbreaking about it was he laid out his plan about how he went uh, translating all of this. What was his method by which he would choose which words? And it became groundbreaking for future translators to be able to go back and look at his method and then kind of build off of that as well. 
Since World War II, there have been an explosion in the number of and the variety of translations uh, of the Bible, not only in English, but in numerous European languages and in hundreds of languages and dialects throughout the world. The New American Standard Version was published in 1960, and it became a traditional and quite literal translation of the Hebrew and the Greek. Then the Church of Scotland also in 1960, published the New English Bible. It had taken them 16 years to work on it. They didn't want to just go back and revise the King James. They wanted to go back to the, to the Hebrew and the Greek and to come up with a new translation that was very literary and relatively free-flowing in its translation. So it made it uh, much easier to read. In 1978, the NIV, the New International Bible, was published. It was kind of a hybrid Bible, Uh, What's interesting is for a number of passages, it it tries to be a little bit more clear, so it uses present-day language. But then, for some of the passages that are more well-known, especially by conservative theologians, there's a tendency to revert to traditional terminology, to some of the language from like the King James and so, even when that might be a little misleading or or not as accurate, but they wanted to keep that, that type of flow. Some scholars have also created Bible translations that would be especially meaningful to particular groups of people. In 1947, J.B. Phillips produced Letters to Young Churches. 1947, this was a way of capturing the tension of young people who couldn't understand or appreciate some of the more traditional Bible translations. In 1976, the Today's English Version was created, otherwise known as the Good News Bible. Who didn't have one of these, right, when you were growing up? Uh, And this is called in the common language in order to reach beyond the church to have a much more secular appeal. Eugene Peterson worked eight years to publish The Message, the Bible in Contemporary Language, which was completed in 2002. I find that it's a very creative translation. I enjoy looking at it alongside the NRSV as I'm doing my own Bible study, just because it uses a lot of more contemporary phrases and Um, and uh, similes and images and that sort of thing. Well, the rate that the Bible is translating, being translated at the world right now is greater than it has ever been in history. And according to the Anchor Bible Dictionary, translating is going on in well over 1,500 languages, including many languages that just recently actually started getting written down. They had only been spoken before. Major revisions and even completely new translations are being undertaken in most major languages throughout the world. Increasingly, this work of the Bible language, of Bible translating, isn't done by missionaries anymore. It used to be you send someone out that knows another language and they try to write it in that language. No, now they're taking uh, national, trained nationals who, under the guidance of consultants, can do a much better job of translating the Bible in their own native language than anyone who comes in as a second language. And so this is having an amazing impact on the growth of churches and the Christian faith all over the world, especially in the so-called third world countries. I mean, you even heard the Pigeon Bible uh, that they've translated for, uh, for people in Hawaii. But before I wrap this up, I want to give you just a few tips and pointers about reading the Bible on your own. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to read the Bible. So first, I invite you to go find a good study Bible. It doesn't matter what translation. In fact, you can go online and just Google different translations to kind of see what you like. Um, You can go old school with the King James, that's fine, or you can go way new school with with uh, with the good news. Find one that you like, but then buy it in the form of a study Bible uh, for a couple of reasons, right? First, 
uh, they have an intro in each of the chapters, uh, not chapters, each of the books of the Bible. Uh, Study Bible has a really good intro that will help you understand the context in which it was written, what are some of the themes, um, and those types of things. It'll give you a, a good setting uh, as you get into it. And then also, there's textual commentary as you move through. So if some passages are kind of confusing, little notes on the side or in the bottom will kind of help you better understand. And of course, you can always download for free the Uversion uh, app on your smartphone, either for Android or for um, uh, Apple. And there are hundreds of translations in numerous languages, all for free. And so if you're not really sure what kind of study Bible to get, you can download for free the, the Uversion Bible app and kind of look through it and see which one you think you'd want to get and then purchase your own study Bible. Second, as you're reading, try to see yourself in the story. Put yourself in the place of the characters. What were they thinking or feeling or doing, even if it's not immediately apparent by the writing? Be creative. And as you immerse yourself in the story, you'll find greater depth and meaning. My seminary professor used to tell me, if you want to get the real power of Scripture, put yourself in the least likable characters. So the, the ones that you just that you kind of cringe, when you, put yourself in there and how, how would... How does that impact you if you see yourself from from that perspective? Third, when you're reading the Bible, ask these these three simple questions. What does the story teach me about God, about myself, or about humankind? In fact, you can just write that on a three-by-five card and stick it in the front of your Bible as a way of reminding, as your whatever passage is, what is this saying about God, about me, about humankind? And then finally, instead of reading the Bible for information, I invite you to read the Bible for transformation. Read it devotionally. And that's where scripture journaling comes in and the acronym of SOAP. You've probably heard me talk about scripture journaling over and over again. It's like, Pastor Jim, would you stop talking about scripture journaling? No, I will not stop talking about it. And maybe you've never had a chance to experience yourself, so we're going to do that this morning. And that's what the papers were handed out. So if anybody still doesn't have one, Ron's got a few that he, can, that he can bring and pass out. Just hold up your hand if you didn't get one. We're going to be using this for just a few minutes this morning uh, as we wrap up. All you have to remember, just raise your hand if you need one. And then grab a writing utent- implement or utensil, uh, pen, or you can grab the little pencil in the seat back in front of you. All you have to remember is the acronym of SOAP. And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, I'm just going to pass, Pastor Jim. I'm really not into that. No, don't, please. Just humor me and go through the motions with me. I promise you, you'll be happy that you did when we're done. So uh, here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to read in just a moment the passage that was our, our passage reading that, that Rhonda read for us earlier from Isaiah 55. Now, as we're going through that, what I want you to do is think of uh, what stands out when you, when you hear it read. It doesn't have to be what the main point is, what the thesis statement might be, uh, the most important. No, just what word or phrase or verse jumps out at you, either because it seems really powerful or, wow, that's really weird. I, why would they put those words in? Whatever it is that catches your attention. And use the pen and the pencil to circle, underline, make question marks, exclamation points, whatever, so you can come back and choose something for there. All right? So here we go. I'm going to read for us... Uh, Isaiah 55, and if you're uh, listening to the podcast, you can just pull out a blank piece of paper and we'll have you follow along as well. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord, that he may have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose, and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Okay, so... Go back and look over. Were there any things you highlighted or underlined? Just pick one thing. It can be a word, a phrase, or a sentence. For example, as I was just reading, for me, I think the thing that stuck out was um, uh, and not return until they have watered the earth. So that's the part that, I, that I'm going to put down. What was it for you? Uh, word, or phrase, or verse. So go ahead and under the S uh, part of your scripture journaling section, just write that word or phrase or verse right now. Go ahead. All right, the next section is observation. Now, there's a couple ways you can go here. If it's a story that you're reading, which in this case it's not, but if it was a story, you can give a brief synopsis of the story of what's happening and then how that uh, what's the insight that that word, phrase, or verse has in light of the story? Or in this case, um, you can simply make an observation about what this says about God, about life, about humanity, whatever. So, for example, uh, the part that I picked about uh, will not return until it's, until is watered the earth, that God is making a connection that the words of Scripture are, are like water that feeds the land, that brings life to to plants and to flowers and to trees and, and is something that helps living things grow. And, and obviously then the scripture is something that can help me grow, something like that. You don't have to write big paragraphs. You can put little bullet points, whatever is helpful. Just make a few notes about one observation from the passage that you picked. Now, the third part is the application. Here's where the real power comes in Scripture journaling, because this is when you start to apply it to your own life. Uh, So, based on that observation you made from that one word or phrase or verse, um, how does this connect to your life? Uh, And you can be as deep or as not so deep as you want here. How might you be different because this insight... Um, For me, uh, we've been thinking a lot about the people in Hawaii this past week because of the hurricane that was supposed to to come. And fortunately, it was downgraded to a tropical depression, but it still dumped lots and lots of water. And so in some ways, I might be thinking, you know, wow, we were so worried about the damage that the water would do. And I've seen pictures and videos of all the water that's been thinking about, wow, what if that was God's word? that has gone out and being just deluged with so much of God. So I I may have, if I was going to be journaling about this this morning, I may have write something about that, that connection to my life in this past week. So whatever your observation was, maybe it's a story, it reminds you of something from a different time in your life, or just how you can apply it to your life now. Go ahead and write a few notes from that.
and I know I'm kind of rushing through this. Normally you take a little bit more time to, to go through this, but the last section is the prayer section. And this is uh, your response to God for what you've just experienced, right? So what do you want to say to God? Maybe it's just thanking God uh, for what you've, uh, what you've, what you've learned. Uh, for me, it probably would be thanking God for, even though there's a lot of rain, um, for not having the damage to the people in Hawaii and to remind me of um, just how life-giving God's word is. Um, it could be... Uh, asking God to help you to grow in areas that you think you need to grow from what you've heard. Anyway, this is just between you and God. It's your time to, to, to respond back to God. You can write it down or you can just pray it uh, in your heart, but it's kind of neat when you actually put it down uh, to paper. So go make a few notes there. Um, we're not going to share the prayer part. Um, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do next in just a few seconds. All right, so here, in order to uh, cement this, I'm going to invite you to turn to the person next to you um, and share in just 60 seconds what, quickly, what stood out to you, what was the verse, the word or the phrase, what uh, observation you made, and a quick connection to your own life. You don't have to share the prayer part. That's between you and God. So it can be the person next to you, behind you, in front of you. Even if you didn't write something down, share what was interesting to you. 60 seconds, be concise, go. Make sure the other person has a chance to share with you or vice versa. out of it every time you read. And if you're reading a passage that seems kind of confusing and you don't get like 75% of it, that's okay. Just write about part of the 25% you did get, right? Uh, Just something simple, and it's a way of connecting back with God. If you found this helpful, uh, I invite you on your way out to pick up a scripture journaling starter booklet in the lobby. They're free, and it 
kind of the, the beginning few pages tells you all you need to know in order to do scripture journaling uh, on your own. And, and whether you do it every day, once a week, or once a month, it's an opportunity to draw closer to God and hear God speak into your life. But if you want a little bit more practice, then every Monday and Tuesday from 7 to 8 a.m. at the Starbucks over on Town Center Drive and Rancho Vista Drive over on the way to Quartz Hill, um, we, there's a group of us that gather to do scripture journaling and drink coffee and eat pastries and just talk for an hour. So 7 to 8 o'clock, Mondays and Tuesdays. You don't have to come every week. You can come whenever you're available. But we do scripture journaling. Everyone's got their own reading plan. We'll help you get started. And we'd love to see you. Sometimes we have as few as two or three. And sometimes we have 12 that are there. So it's quite, uh, it's quite a fun group. Well, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the Bible is a powerful gift that has taken dozens of authors thousands of years to write. It's an epic collection of many different styles of writing, all of which help point us to the one who created us, who redeems us, and who sustains us. I hope this series has helped both deepen your appreciation of and your passion for the Bible. The bottom line is this. We all need to be reading the Bible more. There is so much that God wants to teach us from that. Thanks be to God for this amazing gift that we have at our disposal. And all God's people said, Amen. I invite you to rise as we sing our closing song.